Specialty Story, session number 199. Whether you are a pre-med or a medical student, you've answered the calling to become a physician. Soon you'll have to start deciding what type of medicine you'll want to practice. This podcast will tell you the stories of specialists from every field to give you the information to make sure you make the most informed decision possible when it comes to choosing your specialty. Welcome to Specialty Stories. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray, your host here every week, where I get to have amazing conversations about physicians and the specialty that they chose to fulfill their career with. This week is a very, very interesting discussion with a former attorney turned physician who ended up in a field where she can utilize some of her skills that she had as an attorney even though she wasn't planning on it. We have a great discussion with Dr. Ashley Vanderkar, a forensic psychiatrist. We start the conversation by finding out how Dr. Vanderkar first became interested in forensic psychiatry. So I first became interested in psychiatry in my third year of medical school. And I didn't plan on going into psychiatry. It wasn't even on my radar. And when I did my elective, well, before that, when I did my main psychiatry rotation, again, going into it thinking, this isn't what I'm going to do. I'm going to go be a policymaker. I'm going to go to Washington. I'm not going to even pick a specialty. Um, I did my rotation and I, I fell in love with it. I loved the interactions with the patients. I loved the freedom to sit and talk to people and learn about them. And I just really enjoyed it. But I didn't know for sure that it's what I was going to do until I met a forensic psychiatrist on that rotation. And a little background about me, before going into medical school, I was a practicing attorney. Mm. And so during this rotation, I met a forensic psychiatrist, and I learned about the field of forensic psychiatry, which I didn't know existed. Um, and after talking to her and learning that I could take and leverage both of my degrees and do what I loved, I ultimately during that one rotation decided that I wanted to go into forensic psychiatry and, uh, crafted my electives as well as my match list based on that. That's very interesting. And I'll I'll take a little detour here just for people who, who may have similar backgrounds to yourself. So you were a practicing attorney, decided to go to medical school, but it wasn't necessarily because you didn't like being attorney, because it sounds like when you found out about forensic psychiatry, it's like, ooh, I can mesh the two together. Is that is that right? Correct. I loved being an attorney. But I wanted to do more than what I was doing. Mm-hmm. And my plan, I was in Florida at the time, both when I was practicing and I went to medical school at the University of Miami. And so my plan was to use what at the time Florida allowed, which was to do an internship and then become licensed without a residency, Yep. do that, and then go be a policymaker using both of my degrees. Interesting. And I didn't realize that there were specialties that I would love, and that would also likewise allow me to use both degrees and my knowledge base. Interesting. So you're off at this point off on a different career than you initially <laughs> set out for. Correct. That's very interesting. It, 
I, I'm going to keep going off on this tangent with with the pandemic, right? We have policy and healthcare all kind of merging together, um, and especially down in Florida. Again, I, I don't think you're you're not in Florida anymore, but just kind of seeing what's going on down there with policymakers kind of forcing their will against medicine. It seems like how does that? How do you as a as a uh, as a attorney? see that in the world of medicine now? Well, I, I think that's a very, very um, heated question that many people have different perspectives on. And yeah. I think that the way that you view that is going to depend on what aspect of it you see. And so personally, seeing the impact of policies on the patients that I treat, which for the most part, especially during fellowship, have been people in the criminal justice system. Yeah. So in jails, prisons, state forensic hospitals, it can be frustrating to see policies that might look one way on paper, but then look different once they've been implemented and the effect that they can have on patients. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, a tricky situation. All right, let's let's dive back into uh, the the script here for specialty stories. So it, it sounds like uh, what we find here on this podcast a lot when I talk to physicians here and, and in other places, mentorship has this just huge impact on where people end up. And it sounds like that happened to you. You met this person who's a forensic psychiatrist and was like. Oh, I didn't even know. Like this, this could be a thing, and so here you are now, uh, now knowing this, which is which is great. What are some of the biggest uh, potential myths or misconceptions that you've seen or heard about forensic psychiatry that uh, you want to debunk here? I think a lot of people don't know about it as a specialty, especially when they're in medical school. In Miami, I was lucky to learn about it just because the forensic psychiatrist happened to be the attending one day in the outpatient clinic. And I ended up sitting next to her and she staffed my patients. Similarly, here in Cleveland, the forensic psychiatry program is very integrated with the medical school. So the medical students are familiar with the field. But I think it's not so much a matter of the myths, but that it exists in the first place and that there is this awesome niche within psychiatry that people can choose to pursue that's totally different than your typical clinical psychiatry. Mm. It's literally putting yourself into positions where for the most part you end up acting as an evaluator. Now there's also treatment roles, but there's a large part of the day-to-day -day work that is an evaluation role where you're not there for the patient, you're not there for the other side, you're there for the courtroom, for the judge, as a third party who's performing an evaluation. Now, you can also be there for the patient's attorney, or you can be for the prosecutor, but you're literally sitting there forming opinions, and it's very academic on a day-to-day -day basis in practice, and that's a side of medicine that I think most people don't know about. Yeah. Let, let's talk about it. Let's define what, what is forensic psychiatry? So forensic psychiatry is psychiatry at the intersection of law and medicine. There's a lot of different ways that people can practice forensic psychiatry. 
There are treatment roles. Treatment roles can be outpatient. For instance, during residency and fellowship, I spent part of my time at an outpatient clinic doing medication management for people who were in the criminal justice system, but released, and they were on a mental health court probation, parole, or some sort of diversionary program. So that is one treatment aspect. There's inpatient treatment, where you might be treating people in the jail, in the prison, or treating them for purposes of restoring their competence to stand trial. Now, competence to stand trial is a concept where an individual's mental health might make it so that they can't understand the nature and the objectives of the criminal proceedings. So because of that, the proceedings are paused and they're sent to an inpatient forensic hospital. And some forensic psychiatrists provide treatment there. Then there's also the evaluation role of the forensic psychiatrist, where they're doing the evaluations, either in a court clinic or retained by an attorney, to determine if someone is competent to stand trial or if they meet criteria for a not guilty by reason of insanity verdict. And then also civil things like malpractice, psychiatric damages. There's a whole litany of different cases that forensic psychiatrists can end up being involved in. Interesting. That's very, very, very subspecialized kind of world out there. It, it reminds me a lot of what I did in the Air Force as a flight surgeon, where I was kind of like a family practice doc, but I was answering much more specific questions, right? In, in your world, you're answering, are you fit for trial? In my world, as a flight surgeon, I was answering, are you fit to fly? Um, and you have, you come to the table with a different uh, set of questions than a, a typical, in my world, family practice doc, in your world, a typical psychiatrist. So it's, it's very interesting that that world exists out there. And, and again, as you mentioned, not a lot of people understand that. And fitness, you know, you mentioned fitness to fly. Fitness for duty is one of the types of cases that forensic psychiatrists do. Mm -hmm. You can do a fitness for duty evaluation for a police officer, yep. for a pilot, for a teacher, for a physician, for a medical student. And that's one of the types of evaluations amongst many other that we do. Yeah, yeah. It's it, it's interesting, right? It, I always talk about the the flight surgeon role. It's it's occupational medicine, and it sounds like that's what you're doing, but in in the psych psychiatric world, um, and that's that's very cool. I didn't I never thought about it in that way. <laughs> that's that's interesting. So, uh, all right. So we've defined uh, forensic psychiatry. Um, what led you there? Talk about the. Uh, what a, what a typical day looks like for you? Sure. So you know, in fellowship, every day was different. Yep. Um, so it's a little bit hard to say what a typical day looks like because every single day of the week had a totally different layout. Um, so I don't know if you want me to go through a couple of those days and gives examples because each day literally had a different schedule at a different location, which I loved. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, yeah, just, just talk about what, what you think a typical day will look like for you here now as a, an attending. Sure. So, I mean, you know, again, as an attending, it, it, 
it's not quite clear yet where I'm going to be positioned in the facility. And my typical day is going to vary depending on where I am and whether, you know, I end up um, on one unit versus another. But let's just take an example of two two days um, from fellowship that I think are, are good examples of typical uh, forensic psychiatry days. One would be where I started my day at the state forensic hospital doing consults. So when you hear consults, you probably think of like when you're uh, on a GI rotation and you're doing GI consults or even on a psychiatry rotation and doing psych consults. These were not those types of consults. Instead, what these were are when the treating psychiatrist for someone who they were trying to restore to competency, for example, an individual with severe schizophrenia who had a delusion that they thought that the prosecutor and the judge were working together for the Illuminati. They've been on the unit for six months. They had been found incompetent to stand trial. They've been medicated. And the treating psychiatrist now thinks that the medication has allowed them to push their delusion down enough to understand that the prosecutor is not working with the judge and that there is not a conspiracy. So they would request a consult from someone who is impartial, me or one of the other fellows or someone who is not treating this patient to go and evaluate the individual. And so I would sit down with them and I would perform about an hour to two hour evaluation going through the typical psychiatric questions and then also a bunch of questions specific to the criminal trial proceedings. Once I got done with that, I would come up with a conclusion about what my opinion was, and I would sit down and spend an hour dictating my report. And dictation was definitely something that had a sharp learning curve, but that I came to love. I would dictate the report, and then I would spend the rest of the morning revising and editing the report from the prior week turn it in. Um, and then I would go to my community site where I would proceed to see usually about six patients who were either on a mental health probation, parole, the ones that I discussed before out in the community and provide medication management to help them maintain their stability so that they can continue to be on probation and help reduce the chances of them violating their probation. Mm. So that's one typical day. Um, another typical day that I think provides a good contrast would be a day when I was at court clinic in the morning where I would do evaluations of people who were in the jail to determine as the evaluator whether they were competent to stand trial and or if they met criteria for a not guilty by reason of insanity verdict. Now, that's when someone was so mentally ill at the time of the offense that they were unable to understand that what they were doing was wrong. So I would do that evaluation. They'd usually take about two hours, dictate it, edit the one from the week before, and then in the afternoon, do private cases at a different location involving like fitness for duty, psychiatric malpractice, and so forth. So I think those two days give good examples of uh, the variety um, as well as what the work type is. Interesting. What is it like to to have the ability to evaluate 
a patient and and give your opinion all right give give the reports that goes to a judge um and and the judge or, and or jury or however the situation is can go eh i don't i don't agree with you and i'm going to do what i want yeah so that was one of the hardest parts initially in fellowship was i had this um sort of crisis of who am I to be making these types of decisions and giving these opinions? Um, and they're all gray because even if you're 95% sure, and according to the law, when you offer an opinion, you just have to be reasonably medical, medically certain, which is technically like 51%. Mm -hmm. um, so it was really hard initially to be someone offering this opinion and part of fellowship was coming to grips with being able to well reason out my opinion, to support it, and to be repeatedly cross-examined throughout fellowship because we have mock trials on a repeated basis during our supervision um, as just mock trials, being forced to support my opinions verbally. And as we did that, as the year went along, that really helped me to become more comfortable in offering opinions mm. and also recognizing that I'm not the decision maker. I'm explaining how I view it, why I view it that way, and I'm putting it forth to the trier of fact, which is the judge or the jury. Yeah. And unfortunately, it's not that different than than other healthcare fields, other specialties where you are stating an opinion in your notes and and hoping the insurance company agrees with you and <laughs> and pays for whatever you need done. Sure. Oh, it's fun. I, I'm assuming that that having the background that you have as a uh, having been a practicing attorney has helped tremendously with that ability to to be. Uh, I don't even know, know the right terminology, cr cross-examined or, or, or being kind of brought up to, to talk about this with a, a judge or um, other attorneys. I think it definitely gave me a different viewpoint and it, I view it as very helpful. Now, I will say that the amount that it helped was more um, prominent at the beginning of fellowship because fellowship is crafted in a way to provide all of the aspects that you need and all the skills that you need to do this. Hmm. So people that start fellowship that don't have the JD background, they learn how to read cases, they learn how to testify, they learn um, how to understand case law and the law. And that is actually built in as well as some law classes, um, one in particular, but a lot of legal concepts to help people understand things. So I think it was helpful, but most people that go into forensic psychiatry do not have a JD. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there are plenty of physicians, my wife included, who do a lot of medical legal work who don't have that training, but you just, you learn as you go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's very interesting. So talk about the, obviously, call for you. Is is that a thing? What does is, what is call look like for forensic psychiatry? Yeah. So the nice thing is the job that I'm starting in two weeks, I have no nights, no weekends and no call. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's 40 hours a week. So I am really looking forward to that. I did not have call during fellowship. Um, some people have call either as part of the forensic work. For instance, if you are doing one day a week at a jail 
and you're doing correctional psychiatry, which is kind of like a branch of forensic psychiatry, though, you know, it's more an overlap, Mm. then you might have calls about people that have come in whose medications weren't started or who need seclusion orders or having issues. And then the other type of call, which isn't applicable to me, but is, is for many forensic psychiatrists, is that often, even if you're a forensic psychiatrist, part of your week is going to be regular psychiatry. So most people that practice forensic psychiatry, my understanding is that they do a chunk of regular psychiatry in addition to their correctional and their forensic psychiatry type of work. So there they would be in the typical call pool where they're taking call for inpatient units for CL um, based on their appointment to an academic institution being in psychiatry, although their specialty is forensics. Hmm. And just to clarify, CL consultation liaison psychiatry, is that what you're talking about? Yep. Yeah. Very interesting. Okay. Um. Talk about the the matching process for the fellowship. How how competitive is it for forensic psychiatry? So at the moment, forensic psychiatry is not in the match. Okay. So it is it, you apply and it's outside of the match. Um, the competitiveness is going to vary depending on the year as well as the institution. Some programs are very very competitive, and It's important for those particular programs when you go into it to have a good idea that you're going to do forensic psychiatry from early on in residency so that you can work on getting involved in the organizations. The parent organization for forensic psychiatry is called APPLE, the American Academy of Psychiatry and the Law. And that's an institution that provides a great deal of mentoring, yearly conferences, journals, and opportunities for publishing. And those publications and presentations are going to be important when you apply in order to get into the competitive programs. Mm. Okay. What do you wish, I mean, this is a a standard question I ask. I I don't think it really applies, though, about what do you wish primary care doctors knew about what you're doing day in and day out? But it, it doesn't sound like there's a lot of interaction with primary care for forensic psychiatry. Well, so in my community clinic, um, which is where I see the people in the mental health court docket, Mm -hmm. there actually is because a lot of these patients are mandated to come see me or someone in my office and they're not mandated to go see primary care. Yeah. So the vast majority of the patients who came in to see me, a good number of them did not have primary care doctors. And so because of that, it would often be up to me to kind of point out to them, hey, you know, I got your hemoglobin A1C to monitor it because of your antipsychotic. It's 13. Here's what, <laughs> this, here's what this means. You know, down the hall, I have a primary care doctor. Why don't I walk you down there and you can go talk to them and let's see if we can get you on their schedule and how quickly we can do that. So there was more interaction that you might expect because of it being a mandated treatment setting. And most of them, I don't know about most of them, but a lot of them not having primary care treatment and my trying to kind of fill that gap and explain the importance of managing their sugars and their hypertension and being on their HIV medications or whatever the deficit might be. But 
coming back to your original question in terms of what I wish that primary care doctors know, there's a lot of stigma associated with mental health. There's even more stigma associated with the combination of mental health and being someone who is a felon. My notes are very detailed. And so even in my community setting, my notes mention, you know, this person was in prison for 10 years because of murder or because of 15 years and they have schizophrenia, they're maintained on clozapine, very stable. And my paragraphs about that often get put into the primary care doctor notes. And I worry sometimes about whether that knowledge coming from my note doesn't taint their perception of the patient because that stigma, even though as physicians were cautious about it, studies have shown even with just schizophrenia, there's less adequate primary care provided even when a patient goes into the office because many complaints are viewed less seriously than someone who doesn't have such a diagnosis. So I would just sort of caution um, discounting things and being aware of that unconscious bias, both towards mental illness and someone's legal history when you're managing uh, the primary care aspects of their care. I I did my internship training uh, at at a uh, prison hospital, so it was a, a correctional facility hospital where where inmates would go um, for the Department of Corrections in Massachusetts. Uh, it's no longer there, but it, it was an amazing training site. The whole top floor was a, a prison, basically. You walk through mm-hmm. the gates and get in, and uh, and I took it very seriously when we were initially trained it, that. You you don't ask like why they're there, uh, why they're why they're in prison, right? That's that's not your problem. You're you're here for medical stuff, and and mm-hmm. only worry about that. And one of my co interns, like he when he would be on call overnight, and he'd give presentations in the morning. Um, he would go, oh, this is a 32-year-old male in jail for sexual assault. And I'm like, why are you telling us like that? It's, don't talk about that kind of stuff because mm-hmm. I, I, like, it, it, it does. It, it taints your, um, your perception or can taint your, your ability to do, do what you need to do as a physician. So it, yes. it definitely is, is yes. hard. And it, it, no, it is, and yet it has to be in my notes. Yeah, because their past crime is very relevant to my you know, reducing the factors that could potentially increase them committing another crime. And so it's in my notes. And I think that having it there is a double-edged sword that can present issues for people who are outside of the office that I'm working in, just like you described. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's, it's fascinating. I think, uh, yeah, it's a fascinating world that you're in. I'm glad we're, we're hopefully, uh, um, exposing a lot of students to this this field out there. Um, so as a forensic psychiatrist, are there other specialties or specialists that you work closely with? Um, I think probably the closest is going to be the primary care doctors, both as I described in terms of sending people to their office in the community setting. And then at the state forensic hospital, which is where I did part of my training and is where I'm going to be going when I start my job as an attending in a couple weeks, there is a primary care doctor that 
rounds and that does the initial history and physical on people to look at their medical issues, medications, and who would be there if I have any problems with their medical concerns as we're moving forward and I'm in a treatment role. Mm. So probably primary care. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. What do you know now that you wish you knew before going into this field? <laughs> um, fellowship is intense. I knew that going in because everyone had told me, but personally, I'm someone who hears that and I'm like, yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, of course it's intense. I mean, it's fine. I got it. I can deal with this. And I think the workload of fellowship, um, I don't know if I would say surprised me, but it was as, as intense as people said that it would be. Basically, I ended up having about a half day, maybe a whole day off each week. Most of that was at home. I was only working about 40 hours, maybe 35 in person. But because of how sharp the learning curve is with dictation um, <laughs> and how much you need to dictate in order to be efficient, I would spend a lot of time on weekends and at nights trying to make my dictation look normal <laughs> and be readable. Um, so I, I think the intensity of fellowship, and that's not a matter of not knowing, but just not fully appreciating. And it was necessary. I mean, by the end of fellowship, I would dictate and not have to edit more than a couple of minutes. The other thing I didn't fully appreciate was the amount of writing, and that wouldn't change anything. I just didn't realize it. On average, I would say I was writing about 10 to 15 pages, page reports each day. Um, and so those are two things that I guess I wish I had known. It wouldn't have changed what I did. It was well worth it and necessary. Um, but good to know. You have any quick, quick tips on dictating that someone should, should start practicing skills with today? Um, just realize that it's gonna, it, it's not gonna go well initially. <laughs> You're gonna feel totally nutty sitting there, um, like talking to yourself and it's very awkward Yep. and it does not come out well initially, but as you keep doing it over and over and over again, it cuts your workload in half. Yeah. And ultimately, it comes out really good. And it helps to prepare you for testifying because it teaches you to think how you write and speak. And it makes your speaking style when you're on the stand or you're being cross-examined much more succinct because you've had to do that for dictation. Yeah. Love it. Love it. Yeah. When I, when I first started dictating, it was, all, it was all about the outline that I would go with. Uh, and then you, you just realize that you don't need the outline anymore. You just know what you need to say. Yes. This is great. If you had to do it all over again, would you still be a forensic psychiatrist? Totally. I love it. Um, it's the variety is great. The patient population is great. The intellectual stimulation is always there, constantly changing. Every single patient is different. And there's no real rubrics that you're following. I mean, you have your legal guidelines and your concepts, but you're not going in and working down an algorithm. You're going in and going through a set of questions and then thinking about it. And each case is totally different. So you, you don't get bored. Yeah. Talk, talk for a minute, if it's okay, 
being a a female in this field, again, trying to get more people exposed to forensic psychiatry, you, you mentioned stigmas earlier, right? And a lot of mm-hmm. women, stereotyping here, but a lot of women are going to potentially not feel safe around patients with mental health issues. And, and you add on the layer of a criminal history as well. How have you had to deal with that or have you have you had any um, issues of not feeling safe or, or talk about that for someone who may be really interested but but uh, might not feel like they're going to be safe in this field? So I can see that being a concern. And of course, anytime that you are on an acute unit with people who are having severe mental health issues, whether there's criminality involved or not, mm-hmm. there is going to be a slight safety concern. And you yep. need to be aware of where you're sitting, of whether you have people around you. You need to read the chart to make sure that someone isn't acutely agitated that day or the day before, before you go in and talk to them. But I, I I just haven't had a lot of concerns on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. Looking at the female portion of it, I haven't had patients give me a hard time. I haven't had patients make inappropriate comments any more than they did when I was on inpatient units for, for medical services. Yeah. So I don't think that that is as prominent in the psychiatric or criminal arena as people might think from the outside. The safety part is legitimate. I've never been assaulted. I've never been in a position where I thought I was going to be assaulted. The few times that I saw things start to escalate, I either knew beforehand and had security with me or a patient aide with me, or I had positioned myself so that I could safely get away without getting to the point that I was acutely concerned about my safety. Great. Love it. Hopefully, hopefully that eases some concerns out there. Do you do you see any major changes coming to the field that that may sway someone thinking about it? You know, I don't. I don't. Um, I think two changes that are pressuring medicine in general is the expansion of care. Um towards nurse practitioners and physicians assistants. And that's not something that I've seen even being on a horizon for forensic psychiatry mm-hmm. because of the importance of testifying in court. Yeah. Um, and that's just not been something that I've ever heard of uh, a non-MD or DO physician doing. So I think that portion, which you could see in medicine making changes, isn't there. And then the other change that exists for the rest of medicine that doesn't really seem to impact the core of forensic psychiatry is insurance reimbursement. Because although there is insurance reimbursement with certain aspects of community forensic psychiatry, it's typically not relevant when it comes to the inpatient treatment for competency restoration or the treatment of sanity patients, or the evaluations, which are funded either by the court, by the patient's attorney, or by the opposing side's attorney. So those are the big movers that I see for the rest of medicine, which don't really seem to apply to forensic psychiatry. Yeah, 
I can just see a the the prosecution or defense just like um yeah no we need a physician up here not a PA or NP I mean no no shade to PAs and NPs but I can I can just picture the the opposing counsel be like yeah you're not good enough for for what we need well I think opposing counsel in general will find something <laughs> on anyone's CV yes. and that's part of what we look for you know in mock trials they will do everything from um, like you listing an article that you wrote 10 years ago um, to, you know, how you did in residency and fellowship. So I, I think anything is fair game and having a very tightly crafted CV and history and where you've testified in the past becomes important because of cross-examination being potentially intense on every aspect of your professional life. Yeah, definitely. Any last words of wisdom for the student listening to this potentially interested now in forensic psychiatry? So if you're interested, I would highly recommend Googling the American Academy of Psychiatry and the Law. And if you are able to attend any of the conferences, some of them are virtual at the moment, get the journals, look at the newsletters, a lot of it's online that can help you to view what forensic psychiatry is better. And if you decide that it piques your interest, look for mentors at your institution. And if you don't have one, email someone at Apple and they can connect you with a mentor who can help you to see the field and to see if it's something that you want to pursue. Because if you do, you want to go ahead and once you're in your residency and potentially even in medical school, you want to start publishing, you want to start presenting, and you want to really develop that by going on electives so that you can be a competitive applicant when the time comes in order to apply to forensic psychiatry in your third year of residency. All right, so there you have it. Again, Dr. Ashley Vanderkar, forensic psychiatrist. Very, very interesting discussion about what she does and kind of the the similarities between what I did as a flight surgeon in terms of fit-for-duty type assessments It was very, very interesting. I hope this was an eye-opening episode for you, something a little bit different to help you understand that there is so much out there as a physician, even in non-clinical careers, which we don't talk a lot about here on Specialty Stories, but if you're potentially interested in those, let me know and we can get more non-clinical physicians here on Specialty Stories as well. I hope you have an amazing day, an amazing week, and we'll see you next time here on Specialty Stories. This is MedEd Media.